All right, let's go ahead and open up to John chapter 9. I want to give you a little bit of recap of verses 1 through 12. Remember, Jesus comes across this man who was blind from birth. The disciples begin to question who sinned, this man or his parents, not realizing that there were more options. And so Jesus begins to explain it's not any of that. It's so that the works of God might be displayed in him and Jesus restores his sight. And it's this beautiful picture of God giving life, God restoring sight that we are so blind to sin and we're blinded by sin, but Christ can heal us of that, that he can make us see. And you'll know, I mean, the the religious leaders continue to be outraged and, and all of that is happening. And that's where we pick it up today. And, and what we really begin to get into is this problem of unbelief, right? See, the major problem that the Jewish leaders and the opponents that Jesus was facing in the Gospel of John up to this point, and really throughout all of Scripture, in every one of our lives and through all of history, is just unbelief. It's just hard to believe without God moving in us. Um, you know, I've said it before, the Gospel doesn't really make a lot of sense, Right? Until God helps us to see that it makes perfect sense. Because it doesn't make sense that a majestic king would give up everything. We just read earlier in Philippians 2 that, that Christ, the, the God-man, would come to us. That he would give up everything and go to the point of death for the good of his people. But that just doesn't make sense in our way of thinking. You don't read stories like that. But the gospel is a beautiful thing. And it's hard for us to understand sometimes because we're blind by sin. And the main idea this morning of this text is that sin blinds you to the true condition of your heart. But Jesus gives sight to the blind. And we're going to be looking at three rounds of interrogation this morning followed by a life-changing event. A life-changing question. So hopefully you found John 9 at this point. If you will, let's stand. I'm going to read all of it up front. And then we will work through it together. Starting in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on his eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and would you not listen? And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we, so, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would just bless the reading of your word. As we move through this portion of scripture, Father, may you remove the calluses from our eyes so that we may see. That we may not live in fear of others, that we may not... Be shackled by the sin that holds us down, God, but that we would be set free in Jesus. That we would understand that Christ has died to forgive us of our sins and that we should worship Him because of His graciousness. Father, we know Your Word is powerful. We ask that You would just reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. God, I'm asking that you, through your spirit, would speak. That it would not be my words, God, that we say, but it would be yours. And that those words, trusting that you have given them, will pierce the hearts of your people. That it will call those who have never trusted in you to repentance. And those who have trusted you, who are just walking astray, God, that it will bring them to a realization 
to not to waste their lives. But hold fast to the promise of Romans that we to be transformed through the renewing of our mind. And we should worship. So Christ, we ask you to move in us through your word, through the working of your spirit this morning. It is in your glorious name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So round one, verse 13 again. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. Now, who is they? Obviously, again, we're talking about these religious leaders. We're talking about the people who are around um, who had perceived this. Um, That would seem to be the obvious conclusion, but it's actually the neighbors. See, after the man was um, healed from his blindness, he goes to his home, he goes to his neighbors, he goes to his friends like it would make sense, right? If you were born, I mean, if you were blind from birth and all of a sudden you could see the first thing you're going to do is run to your closest people. He runs to his home. He'd never seen his home. He runs to his friends who he had never seen. He runs to his neighbors and, and they take him now to the Pharisees, to those religious leaders who had authority in their area and they're not doing so maliciously. It would seem that way. Something odd's happened. We need to go. They're wanting to get verification. What is actually taking place here? Is this true? Is, is this a work of God that has healed our neighbor? And then we go into verse 14 and we find one of the major problems. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and he opened his eyes. See, this miracle was performed on the Sabbath day. See, it's, it's only adding fuel to the fire for these religious leaders because they're already irate at Jesus because he's going against them and really their systems. If you remember, this is all on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where Jesus interjects himself into the heightened part of that ceremony to declare that what they were doing had no eternal effect, that he was the living water, right? And so they're already after Jesus. They're, they're trying to kill Jesus. They're trying to arrest Jesus. They even um, devised this plan to exploit this girl um, to make her look as she was being unfaithful. So they set her up in order to put her in front of Jesus, trying to trap him. And in his brilliance, he is the God man turns it back on them and says, let him who is without sin cast first stone. So they're irate at Jesus. They want to destroy Jesus. And now to find out that he's healed a man of his blindness and that he did it on the Sabbath would just fuel that fire. Why? The religious leaders of their day had come up with over 600 laws that they had to follow. And the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath, was one of those. But some of the Sabbath laws were a little ridiculous. See, because what they were accusing Jesus of was twofold. One, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and it was against the law to provide medical attention to someone who was not facing immediate death. But also, they're accusing him of breaking the law of needing. Right? So it was illegal to knead bread. And they assumed that if he took mud and he spit in it and he rubbed it together, that that was the same as kneading. 
right? So they're throwing all of this on the table, and they're angry because Jesus is, in, in essence, broken two laws. So then he goes on, verse 15, So the Pharisees again asked him, that's the man who was born blind, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So again, how is he seen, right? So they're asking him once again. So this is round one of interrogation. They're asking him, so how are you seen? And he just reiterates the same answer he's already given. Jesus, this man came. He took mud out of the ground. He spit in it. He put the mud in my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam, and I could see. Now, we know, right, that the mud and the spit and the pool itself is not what provided the miracle. It was the work of God himself, right, that brought sight. But then there's this division amongst these people because they're, wait a minute, like some of them are angry again because Jesus is guilty of needing. Some are angry because Jesus has broken the Sabbath and they can't really get along themselves. The interesting thing is here is, according to their law, they're both right. right? He, he broke the law of needing because he moved. I mean, and, and we're, when we say some of these laws are ridiculous, I mean, we're talking these laws are ridiculous. Like, a man could not carry a handkerchief from the top floor of his home to the bottom because it was seen as labor on the Sabbath. Um, we've went through that uh, months ago in another portion of John, John chapter 5. Um, but... In their eyes, Jesus had broken two laws. So they deduced that he was a sinner. They come up with that conclusion. And here's the deal. When we get too caught up in religion, we fail to see the reality of the Savior. And that's exactly what was happening here. They were so caught up on their law, they were so caught up on their system, that they couldn't accept the good thing that was happening in front of them. I mean, it would only make sense to rejoice that this man had received sight after being blind his entire life. But instead, all they wanted to do was destroy Jesus. And so the blind man, formerly blind man simply responds to them, he is a prophet. He knew that something was different about this man. And this is interesting because we kind of see this with Nicodemus throughout the Gospel of John where he progresses in his um, profession of Jesus. Like we first meet Nicodemus earlier in John 3, he doesn't convert to Christianity, he doesn't trust Christ as a Savior. And then again, a little later, he, he stands up for Jesus in the face of um, his, his brotherhood of Pharisees. But we actually don't see him confessing Christ as Savior until much later in the Gospel of John. And you almost see a similar situation with this man. Early on, he just says he's just a man, and now he's saying he's a prophet. So you see this building progression. As the tensions flare and as the people want to come after Jesus harder, the people they're using seem to be actually falling more in love with who he is. And so Jesus is actually being lifted up in their opposition. But he knew something was different. 
No ordinary man could come and take mud and spit and give me sight. Then we move on to round two of interrogation. Look at verses 18 and 19. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So they're still not convinced, right? They, they're asking this man, all right, how did you see? And, and what was the process? They still don't believe him when he gives the answer. So their best conclusion is, is well, let's get his parents, right? Because it would make sense, right? Think, think in the way that they're perceiving the situation. If, if I go and I ask you if you had a condition from birth, the only way you would know is if somebody told you. Right? Because you're not going to remember that. You're not going to remember, you know, being an infant, being blind. But the parents surely would. Because they would have understood the pain of what it was like to have a child with this condition. So they turned to the parents to ask them, is this your child? And is it true that he was born blind? Is it true that he has had this condition his entire life. They're just not convinced. So they begin to question others. Now here's where it gets a little interesting. Look at verse 20. His parents answered, We know that this is our son. And that he was born blind. So they affirm. This is our son. He was born blind. He's had this condition his entire life. But then in verse 21, it gets a little odd. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now again, and parents, you're probably going to get this even more so than anyone else, but imagine, imagine the pain and the confusion that these parents had when their son was born and he was blind. I mean, what's the first thing we do? We start counting fingers and toes, right? I mean, it's like, is everything okay? Um. We're, we're nervous, we're anxious, we're, we're kind of fearful, but imagine the, the heartache that these parents would have faced knowing that their son was born blind. Now, we don't know if this was their only child. It doesn't say, but regardless, they, they would have felt pain. Now, think back. After he's healed, what does he do? He immediately runs home. Now, we don't know if he was living with his parents. We don't know if he was living somewhere else. We do know he was confined to being a beggar, as most blind folks were in that day. They, they had no aid like we do. There were no seeing eye dolls. There were no little, you know, seeing, you know, there were no helps. There was no braille, nothing like that. Now, now, wouldn't it just make sense that he would go to his parents? If not first, pretty doggone quickly, to share this good news. Now, you, as a parent, if 
you had a child with this condition. And he came to you and said, I can see. You would rejoice. Right? But how do they respond? This is our son, yeah. But the sad reality is they deny knowing anything of how it happened or who did it. And they deflect the answer back to him. Because as you see in verse 22, in parentheses, we, we read <clears throat> that his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They were more afraid of losing their place in the synagogue than they were of loving their son. They were more afraid of the religious backlash that they may face. They weren't even necessarily going to confess Jesus as the Christ, but they didn't want people to perceive that them saying that Jesus was the man who gave them sight was their confession of Jesus, so they just completely deflect the answer back to their son so they wouldn't have to carry the weight of the brunt of the punishment. Fear of, of man and worldly systems should never interfere with the love we have for our brothers and sisters. Never. I mean, could you imagine being a parent and just deflecting this? Like, And one thing that this, this passage actually doesn't really, you know, mention much, but you would have to, to think this. Imagine the rejection the son is feeling at this point. His parents? I mean, this is, again, likely the very first people he goes to to, to rejoice with him, and, and now they're completely denying any knowledge. And they ask him. He's old enough. He's, he's legally old enough to answer for himself. You go to him. Don't ask us. How often do we let fear determine the way we live and love? How often does fear of what people are going to think or, or how the world responds or will respond affect the way we do or do not live our lives? History is filled with men and women who courageously stood firm on the rock of Christ. Many of them faced pain and imprisonment and lost their lives. One example is John Bunyan. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, it's the second best-selling book of all time behind the Bible. Um, the story of John Bunyan is he was a Baptist minister in, in England. And it was a, a church-ruled state at that point, and they basically said anyone not preaching our set of doctrines um, will be imprisoned. And he got busted for preaching the word, and they put him in prison. And, and the thing about it is, is, that would sound like punishment in and of itself, but here's where it gets really bad. They put him in a tower, actually. See, and, and the thing about John Bunyan's imprisonment was um, one of his daughters was actually born blind. And she was a beggar. 
she actually would sit on the corner and sell pots and pans. Um, and when they imprisoned Bunyan, they put him in a place where the one window in his tower was overlooking the corner where his little girl sat to sell pots and pans as a little blind beggar. I couldn't imagine that. And they would come, and they would say, all right, if you recant, if you go back, and you agree to not preach the way you are preaching, we'll let you out. And you can be with your little girl. You can be with your family. And he refused. He was not afraid of them, and he knew that his God was much greater than any infirmity she had. And he knew that his God was much greater than any punishment they could deliver. And he knew that his God could care for his little girl better than he could. And he would not sell out because of their pressure. He would not sell out because of their threats. And that's just one story. We could go on and on and on about courageous men and women of the faith who were not afraid to stand firm for Jesus. Round three, verse 24. So the, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So they bring him in again. All right, it wasn't, wasn't good enough, his answer that they gave before and they weren't even satisfied with the parents' answer because really they weren't able to trap Jesus. That's ultimately what it boils down to. Nothing had you know, been able, given them enough fuel, enough um, reason to imprison this man or Jesus at this point. So they go back. And they immediately tell him, give glory to God. This man is a sinner. Now, this would seem interesting, right? Because... We would say, give glory to God, but what they're actually doing is say, give glory to God, not Jesus, because they were not recognizing Jesus as God. So, simply, what they said was, give glory to God, because this man is a fake. He is a false prophet. He is not God. He is not of God. He is a sinner. In verse 25, he answers and he said, whether this man is a sinner... Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. Christian, you should be encouraged by this response. There are going to be many people who come and who bring accusations. But this is our story. I may not know all the details. I may not be able to stand and teach a systematic theology to you. And this, I'm saying this is you. You might, you might not be able to teach a class on the Bible. You might not know everything. But if Christ has saved you, this is your story. I don't know. But he saved me. This is a powerful statement by this man. And again, this is... An uneducated man. He was a beggar. Blind people in this day and age were beggars. That's all they could do. 
So it's not like he's been to temple and learning. It's not like he was this learned man. He has been a beggar his whole life, and he simply responds, I don't know, but what I do know is I was blind, and now I'm not. You haven't done a thing for me, but he made me see. No education. He doesn't have all the answers, but he can see. So they respond to him in verse 26 and say, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This is actually a little bit of humor to me because what he does is he begins to realize that they're just simply trying to trap him. Why else would they continue to ask the same questions? They're, they're hoping he will trip. They're hoping he'll give some kind of inclination to an answer that they can use. So he actually responds pretty sarcastically with a little bit of wit. Now, now why is it that you keep asking me this? Why, why are you so interested? Is it that you want to become disciples of Jesus too? Now, again, they're doing this all out of outrage, and you can imagine having this poor beggar stand in front of them and then just answer like this to them what kind of response they would have. The, the problem is, is they simply can't see. They're outraged, right? How is it that you see? Why, do you want to become disciples of Jesus too? So how do they respond? Verse 28. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They're outraged and they begin to lash out. They begin to lash out because of their pride. See, again, they're so blind by their sin that they can't see the reality of what's in front of them. So they say, well, you might be his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. Again, they're, they're pulling that whole descendants card. Right? We're, we're children of the promise card. We're going we're gonna to roll that way. And they say, God spoke through Moses, which is true. But then when they turn to Jesus, they deny that God is speaking through him. Which is ironic in and of itself because he is God in the flesh. And how many times have we gotten so called up in anger or pride or just ignorance that we completely miss something and we respond in a not very healthy way. See, Jesus had proven himself, really, even in John's account, multiple times. He had dropped these lines here and there and he had, he had made things happen that were not really explainable, but except unless it was God himself Moving, and they continue to reject this truth. And so here's the truth that we find in that. 
that it's not until God opens our eyes through the Holy Spirit that we can see beyond sin's blinders. You want to see the reality of why things are happening? In the beginning, I said that the gospel doesn't really make sense to those who have never trusted Christ. But once we trust Christ, once the Holy Spirit moves in us and changes our hearts, then our eyes are opened and we begin to see the beauty of what God has done. It's God's work that opens our eyes. It's God's moving that transforms our souls. It's God's work that saves us. It's nothing that we can do. It's not our, again, it's not our attendance, it's, it's not our servanthood, it's not our giving, it's none of that. It's simply trusting in Christ. The other things are an outflow of worship. They don't equal salvation, they don't lead to salvation, they are, they are a response to salvation. But sin blinds us to that reality. And sin lies to us daily. Look at verse 30. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Again, a powerful response from a man who would not have been a learned man. He's saying you can reject him all you want, but the reality is, is I can see. And only God can do this. So you could continue to say that he's not from God, but if he was not from God, how would my eyes be opened? He's saying, only God can do this. Only God can open my eyes. And that is the gospel. That only God can make dead men live. Only God can bring life to a dying soul. His story is powerful. He uses his testimony to go up against the religious leaders. What was his story? His story is verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. The one thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. Folks, you have a story too. And you should be ready to share that story. And always be pointing to Jesus as the hero of that story. More than likely, if you're in here, you have probably questioned your own story at some point. Is my testimony powerful enough? Is it juicy enough? Right? Was I converted out of some outrageous situation or was I saved as a child and have lived a you know, rather boring life? The truth is this, it doesn't matter what the conditions around your salvation are. If you are a redeemed child of Christ, your story is powerful. 
because it's a story of sin being washed away. And it's a story of sin being washed away by nothing you did. It's only by Christ. It's a story of Philippians 2. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That means God came to you. And he saved you. Where's the power in a testimony? It's not in the details. It's in the fact that God saves. God and God alone. If you begin to tell or hear someone share a testimony and it's, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and and I received this because I did all of these things, there's no power in that. The power is in the testimony of saying, I had nothing. I had no hope. But God. Right? Two extremely powerful words. Ephesians chapter 2. We're born as children of wrath, haters of God, enemies of God. We are doing the works of our father the devil. We are of our father the devil. We have no inkling of want to be in the presence of Jesus. And then you get into Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 and it just starts, but God. But God being rich in mercy with outrageous love loved us. For by grace you have been saved. That's the power of a testimony. That it's the work of God that brings you to life. So be ready to share it. Verse 34. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. See, standing for Jesus may lead to difficult situations. It may lead to rejection. But he, Jesus, promises to never leave you. Don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of the worldly systems. Don't be afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of anything. Know that Christ is with you and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That means in the darkest, most painful moments of your life, he is there. And he always has been. And he always will be. And that leads us to this main thrust. And this is life-changing question that we find in these following verses. Starting in verse 35. Jesus basically catches wind of what's happening that this man's being interrogated. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the question of the hour. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, he said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world, this world, that those who do not see may see. That those who may see, who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Is this your story? It's my story. 
We're to trust Jesus. We're to live for him. And we may face many trials. We may face being rejected and, and cast out and condemned. See, this man faced excommunication. He was cast out of the church because they didn't believe him. He was pushed out. He was cast out. And it didn't stop him. And it's in these few verses where the entire purpose, the ultimate purpose of him being born blind and him going through this trial is made completely clear. Because you think about this. This man had been born blind and it was nothing on his own that he'd done. He was just born blind. And then he's healed, right? He's healed by Jesus, which is a good thing. But immediately after being healed, he begins to be interrogated by the religious leaders instead of them rejoicing in the miracle that had taken place in his life. And then that is responded with him being cast out of the church. So it's like Jesus comes and does something good for him and all he gets is terrible things. That's our story. But the good news is this. That every one of his people, that is every one of his sheep, Jesus, as the good shepherd, seeks us out. Again, verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And that is the ultimate purpose. This man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Was the work of God that his sight was restored? No, the work of God is so that his life could be restored, that he could be saved. And he would stand in, the, in front of the adversity of being interrogated by the religious leaders of the day, and he would stand firm knowing I was blind, but now I see. That's the truth of the gospel, that Jesus comes to save sinners. And many will be given sight. And many more will remain in darkness because they think they already have sight. That points us again to the main idea that sin blinds you to the true condition of your heart, but Jesus gives sight to the blind. And for those who have received sight, they have received faith in Christ, how comforting it is to know that through all the trials you face, all the temptations you will go through, all the struggles you will have to endure, Jesus is there. Truly working all things for good. And he will never leave and he will never forsake. So are you trusting Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to this Savior? Do you believe? Verse 38 said, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Do you believe, and are you worshiping? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of life. We pray now that you will continue to do what you so faithfully do, and that is give sight to the blind and life to the dead. In Christ's name we pray.